Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And it is Wednesday, March 13th. At least it is in our world. You're probably listening to us after this. Uh, Joining us on today's show is Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you? Oh, I'm surviving. Uh, Going to the Young Democrats of Georgia convention this weekend. So uh, it's my my last time on the show as president in the Young Democrats of Georgia. Luke has news. Luke has news. Oh, I'm also engaged. So I'm doing pretty good. (laughs) Oh, yeah, you are doing very good. And I had no idea you were getting engaged. Yeah, well, yeah. We'll do a a separate podcast special on that. Yeah, congratulations (laughs) to you. Thank you. And our condolences to her. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Accurate. (laughs) Uh, Also joining us today is Megan Payne. Megan, welcome. Thanks. Now that I've, you know not inhaled the beer that I was just drinking. <laughs> Hi, everybody. How's it going? I think this one's going to be a riot today. Um, yeah. Also joining us is Ben Stout. Ben, how are you? Doing well. Just came off the golf course. And as we discussed before the podcast, I'm enjoying a healthy diet of Doritos and wine this afternoon. Gross. You're not <laughs> that wrong. Is it so, is gross. <laughs> that is My so show gross. surrounded by heathens. <laughs> All right, so on today's show, we'll discuss a ban on abortion at six weeks that passed the Georgia House late on crossover day last week. That bill is moving forward in the Senate this week and has the backing of the governor. Then today, the Senate passed a bill overhauling the state's election infrastructure over the objection of Democrats and some outside conservative groups. So we'll talk about the future for that bill. Next, voters in Gwinnett County will go to the ballot box on Tuesday to decide whether the state's second largest county will join MARTA. Would passage spur transit expansions across the suburbs? And is there a chance that this referendum actually loses? We'll talk about that. And then we'll clean it up today with some other odds and ends from crossover day as we sprint to the finish. Um, So let's start with the first topic here. So late on Thursday night last week, the House debated and approved a bill that would ban abortions at six weeks, often before women know they are pregnant. The measure passed 93 to 73, just two votes above the needed constitutional majority. The passage was a big step forward for Governor Kemp, who last week flipped his support from a bill triggering an abortion ban if the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade to this bill, which is designed to pick a fight with SCOTUS. But reproductive rights advocates seethed at the bill's passage, and one Democrat introduced legislation that would apply similar regulations on men's reproductive organs. Um, So let's start with uh, what actually happened in the chamber on Thursday night. Ben and Megan, I know you were both at the chamber on crossover day. Um, So Megan, what was the environment like as this vote was taking place on Thursday night? It was really tense. Um, So I know I I actually couldn't even get into the chamber. I was, it was so full of people just watching everything go down that there was a waiting um, line to get into the gallery. And so I ended up watching it with a bunch of people on the third floor of, of the Capitol. And there was a lot of you know, reactions to what was being said. A lot of the testimony was really hard to hear. Um, I know um, when the bill was being presented, uh, a lot of the representatives, or maybe not a lot, but a handful of the representatives turned around um, and turned their backs as the bill was being presented. So it was a tough night. Ben, you were also there. What what did you see? Yeah, I mean... um there was uh, so I headed down whenever I found out that the bill was going to uh, was going to be called in a special rules session. Uh, they were calling a special uh, hearing for the rules committee to get some more bills through that night. That included the ERA, which we'll discuss later, as well as the heartbeat bill and uh, and several other bills as well. Uh, so that's whenever I headed down there. It was already pretty late in the evening. And so I got down there. Um, there was about, I'd say, a gathering of maybe 20 or so um, on the on the far side of the chamber uh, as people were watching. And these were kind of uh, individuals who were opposed to it. And, um, and then on the other side of the chamber um, were just kind of the lobbyists. That's uh, usually where the lobbyists gather. And so they were just kind of waiting for their bill to come up because there was about five bills to be heard after this. Um, I mean... A couple of things that these are just, uh, you know, kind of give me a moment of personal privilege here that, that this is just my take of the way it went down. So the bill came before the House floor 
And I felt like if you go back and watch the video, the weight of the, the vote and of the situation was ep- evident on Representative Setzler's mind, right? He understood the seriousness of this. He understood how much opposition was a part of this. He understood the just how much people cared on both sides of this issue. And then at the same time, you had Democrats who stood up and turned around their, turned their backs to him as he's given his speech uh, and then held up hangers in the air um, while he's given the speech. And I just felt like it, it brought the level of dialogue down. That's not just me. That, that was the speaker as well. I think See, I disagree with you. I think that what they were doing was showing how dire the circumstances were. I don't think it brought anything down at all. I think it was a great representation, a silent representation. Well, and it was not completely silent, and we'll get that into that in a second. But I think that what what Speaker Ralston, I think that th- that was not a a occurrence that just happened and ended and will be done. So Speaker Ralston had Representative Spetz, uh, Setzler stop uh, his speech and told them to to follow the rules of the order. So House Rule one point one says that you will always conduct yourself with good decorum, and that um, and you know they read the full rule. After he did so, they did not sit down, and they would not, and they would not turn around. And so he had an aide go, and they eventually lowered their hangers. And finally, the speaker just said, "This will be dealt with later." And then later on in the night, whenever the minority report was being given, uh, a representative, do you know who that representative was? Renita Shannon. Rep- yeah, uh, continued well past her time. After she was told to stop, she wouldn't. Uh, her mic was cut off, and. The speaker told her to leave the well. She would not leave the well. Eventually, her colleagues had to remove her by escorting her physically off of the well. And again, the speaker said, this will be dealt with later. I talked to people who have been down at the Capitol for many years, and they said that rarely have they ever seen the speaker this mad and that there were going to be repercussions. I don't know what that means, um, but I, I just felt like it, not necessarily the second thing, but the first thing, degraded the dialogue or the seriousness of the situation and i understand what you're saying megan that they were just showing the severity but i also think that it hurt democrats throughout the session and that speaker Olson is known for willing to make compromises and and working with trammell and and other members of the house on the democratic side but they did not do themselves any favors that night i hear what you're saying but i don't think that you understand the severity of this bill this bill stands to gut major rights and I don't it, like. Were you listening to the women in there telling their stories of being raped? Park Cannon said that somebody tried to rape her straight. This is a big deal, Ben. And so I think that they were well within their rights to do whatever they could to make a point that this is not okay. This it is not okay that this bill passed. It is not okay. I am very excited that this bill passed. And, t- and two points to that: the first bill uh, point is to talking about rape in which this uh, bill does not affect any situation of abortion and rape in Georgia. So the, the current stance, False. No, I said it doesn't affect the law for rape in Georgia. The, the, the point here, the point here on, on the issue with rape, though, is that you still have to file a police report to, you know, I guess, get the exception. Um, and Setzler, uh, in committee, actually said that the, the exceptions that were put into the bill are exceptions that he does not personally agree with, but they were exceptions that he was seeking to get wider support for the bill. Um, so it's it's not true that there that there is no relationship with, like, you know, with rape. That no, no, I'm just saying there the, are new the, regulations the way the law currently here. stands and the way the law would be after if should this bill passed in regards to abortion under the situation of rape would not change. It would still be 20 weeks in Georgia with the stipulation of rape it, the the law regarding abortions and rape in georgia does not change with this bill well the police report well, the is the issue is that you have to file a police report which is a which is an important consideration well and this is the root of a lot of the opposition and a lot of the uh charged emotions that were on the floor the other night is that this is dealing with a core fundamental right that has been a part of American society since 1970, what, 1973, I think. Um, I don't know if but, I would call something since 1973 core and fundamental, but continue. Well, I mean, for, for most of the adult life of women of reproductive age, this has been, you know, the law of the land since the 1970s. Um, but Luke, this bill was not actually supposed to come for a vote. I mean, and this is what we discussed on the show last week, was that initially Brian Kemp, Governor Kemp, supported a bill that would trigger a vote on 
banning abortion in the instance that the central holding of Roe was overturned. Governor Kemp well, initially you, you, supported you, you, that you bill. Just point, well, Kyle, you're just pointing out the central flaw with passing a bill that overturns abortion in, you know, in Georgia if Roe versus Wade is overturned. You have to overturn Roe versus Wade, and okay. this is what this bill is decided. You know that's you know, not true, Luke. Yeah, yes. Okay, okay. So let's, let's which, jump into Which this. part of my statement is not true? I'm just saying that you know that you can provide restrictions on abortions and it not violate Roe. Like, that's, well, well. Yes, that would be the Casey versus Planned Parenthood holding, which you require no undue burden, which... I don't know. I'm not a you know lawyer yet, but my like basic understanding of the phrase undue burden, if you put a burden on individuals who cannot get an abortion after a heartbeat is detected, most people do not know that they are pregnant before that point. So that would basically eliminate abortion, thus making it an undue burden. I think that will be a very easy argument to make. Well, and to be clear here, so this is an explicit strategy of conservatives, that the heartbeat bill is not something that under current jurisprudence is constitutional, but that the idea is that when you have a conservative majority on the court and Brent Kavanaugh's ascension to the court is what strengthened the conservative majority here, that you need state-level legislation that is unconstitutional that works its way through the court system and that ultimately ends up before the Supreme Court. And the hope of pro-life activists would be that something like the heartbeat bill would overturn the central holding of Roe. And so at this time, this bill is unconstitutional and the bills that are going into effect, Georgia's not the only one. Tennessee is considering one. Iowa recently considered one. I think they passed one last year. Uh, Ohio considered one. I think they also passed theirs. And Ohio legislators, Ohio Republicans were explicit when they said that this is a bill that aims at the heart of Roe with the intention of overturning. But the thing the thing is, even if that is not the goal, because I, I do not doubt any supporter of this legislation that they want this to happen, and they don't really care if it's constitutional or not, they want this to happen, a very convenient sub, you know, achievement of the legislation is that they will almost definitely get sued and it would provide them an opportunity to argue their position, which I know, Ben, you deeply believe and you would enjoy the opportunity to go before the Supreme Court and say why you're right. So I really don't see why you would have any issue with me saying that this legislation is designed to make abortion illegal in the United States because that's the goal. Well, no, just that just that it uh, it will... Uh, overturn the central holding of, of Roe. So the national right to life and, and others do, don't believe that that is something that, that would happen. So there's a big, there's constitutional law that, that goes into, you rarely see a central withholding overturned after such a long period of time. It's a very sketchy thing to do. It, uh, but um, so, so what happens is death by a thousand distinctions is what they call it. And so they're wanting to expand Casey. I agree with you that that's that's what's likely to happen. That 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 still causes a lawsuit. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) absolutely. I mean, the money is being appropriated for a lawsuit. It's four million dollars. Is my understanding. But um, but the the uh, the actual bill and the language in it was drafted by two former clerks of Roberts to get the moderates to not have to overturn the central holding, but to expand on Casey. Uh, the term under Casey is vi- after viability and creating that the heart defeat provides viability. So that's what they're trying to get at here. Which is BS because heartbeat does not mean viability. Well, and I don't want to get too deep into the constitutional law here, but but the, the, the idea that banning abortion before most women know they're pregnant is, is an does not constitute burden. an undue burden is not. I definitely like, have to agree with that. It's the definition of undue burden. And so therefore it would, the only way constitutionally that it would succeed is to overturn the central holding of Roe so that the undue burden test doesn't exist anymore. Um, But yeah, the reason that we got on this is that Kemp switched positions on this. He initially supported a trigger bill, which did not change the status quo. And then he switched uh, to supporting the heartbeat bill once it got out of committee I mean, he encouraged he on the night that it got out of committee, he encouraged the House to pass it and he is actively encouraging the Senate to pass it. Um, So this was a big switch, uh, in my view. What do you think changed Kemp's mind here? I mean, I don't think it's a big switch. I think exactly where I started is, is how I still feel, which is I think 
Kemp had the option of doing a a symbolic gesture of saying, I don't like abortion, or doing something that could proactively end abortion in the United States, and so he chose to do the thing that could proactively end it. I think his his position has remained the same. It's just the the venue in which he is expressing his position. He's taking the more aggressive, more proactive option. Uh, And, you know, for, for, you know, people... Uh, who are against the holding Roe versus Wade? It's kind of crazy to not use your legislative power to try to overturn it if you have that option. And I think uh, Kent might not have known that he they that they had the potential support to do it. And when he initially was uh, for the you know the smaller option, uh, to to me this just basically you know he started. Uh, halfway there and then when he realized he could get the full way he decided to go the full way that's that's my impression but i'm sure some others might have uh more information than i do on that that sounds about right to me luke i actually disagree because and ben what do you think of this i i thought i read some disappointment among social conservatives about the trigger bill as kemp governing more along the lines of governor deal Um, and bottling up the ambitions of social conservatives, knowing that a trigger bill was very unlikely to go into effect uh, because the central holding of Roe was unlikely to be overturned. And so I actually thought that that was an off-ramp that Kemp was taking that would be disappointing. And to me, it's a big shift to go from an off-ramp to trying to push through a bill That'll, I mean, there's so many of these now that there's probably going to be a package of these that ends up before the Supreme Court. But Georgia's bill, if it passes, is likely to be in the mix. Ben, what would, what are your thoughts on on the change in strategy here? Governor Kemp's team initially had concern uh, because the bill we all know is going to go before a legal challenge. And so every I has to be dotted and every T crossed for the bill to be ready. And in fact, and we can get into this, but the bill is not done yet. And it's actually going to have to go back before the house because it wasn't ready. There are still things in it that have to be fixed. And so that was the holdup for his support. Um, I think that uh, those who were close to him kind of felt like A, it was close enough and B, obviously crossover day, it was now or never. And so he decided to move forward with his support. I was a little surprised that he did uh, it so vocally. Rarely will you see a governor during session come out with an AJC article on the day of it has to be passed, as well as a Facebook video, and he was holding meetings in his office that day. I mean, he threw all of his weight behind this. Of course, as a pro-life conservative, nothing could make me more happy, and I was extremely appreciative of his support. But but yeah, him getting behind it that day, he, he supported the legislation. There was just a lot of holdups, and then finally he was ready to pull the trigger. Yeah, because this bill is definitely not ready. I think even, I, I would hope, Ben, you would agree with me that uh, some of the concerns that Rep. Uh, Walensky uh, pointed out, <laughs> where the bill uh, defines a fetus with a heartbeat as a person, and there's a lot of like potential torque claims that you know you could get into with that, that uh, he, he pointed out is sort of, you know, uh, if someone is committing a crime and trips and has a miscarriage, that that could lead to <laughs> criminal charges based on the death of the baby while committing a crime. There's lots of lots of issues with that. So well, wasn't I, I, you he the know, one that brought up the carpool lane? Yes, he's also, I think so. Uh, he, uh, the the idea that since a fegus is a person, you could drive in the carpool lane because you have two people in your car. Uh, fun stuff like that. Yeah, I'm all for it. Pregnant ladies, carpool lane. Take them. <laughs> all right. Um, well, at least you're consistent, you know? So, but you guys noted that this bill, it it's going to need some cleanup to it. So it's going to, it's going to have to get through the Senate. The The reporting on the night that we're recording indicates that it'll be in uh, Senator Renee Unterman's Science and Technology Committee, uh, which is truly ironic. Um, it'll be there tomorrow, and uh, Lieutenant Governor Duncan is adding a couple of men as ex officio members of the committee uh, so as to avoid a close vote and to include a couple of attorneys because none of the Republicans on uh, Unterman's committee are attorneys, but there are two Democratic attorneys on that committee. What do we think the future of this bill is and if we, if we take what you said earlier, Ben, that the the um, the Senate is a little more socially conservative than the House, the House will have to take another vote on this bill. Um, is there a chance that this doesn't ultimately end up on the governor's desk? I, I'm being told that the that it will receive more votes when it comes back to the House. 
Um, and the reason being is that there were a couple of votes, Sharon Cooper, who, who we've mentioned, uh, who was the chairman of Health and Human uh, Services that it came out of, she it will likely be a yes when it comes back. She had some tax concerns with the way it, the language was drafted. Those are going to be fixed on the Senate side. And so when it comes back, she will likely be turned to yes. I'm also told there was a representative, I forget his name. He was out due to family issues and was not able to be there to vote. It was not like a convenient walkout, like he was actually out for serious issues. And, uh, and he will be a yes vote. And so I'm told that there will actually be more votes coming back uh whenever it comes back to the house side it will have to it'll be a contentious vote the the press i think was caught a little off guard on this one because it was the last day with the special hearing um which it, it holding those special hearings for rules typically happens to get bills through but it was just kind of it happened so quickly i think uh it will be a little bit more contentious um but uh but i'm told that the votes are there at this point they're there is opposition from reproductive rights activists to this bill, but a lot of what we've seen with socially conservative legislation in recent years, particularly RIFRA, is that it also inspires a backlash among the business community. And this morning, or well, I think this was actually yesterday at one of uh, Stacey Abrams' thank you tour events, she was critical of business leaders in the state for basically not opposing this bill that uh, they were being that business leaders were being too short sighted in over concerns that if this bill were to pass, uh, it would be more difficult for uh, companies to recruit women to come work at their companies in Georgia because women would not want to move to a state with uh, such a restrictive abortion law. Um, Megan, what do you think about the lack of opposition to this bill? or Or do you think that the opposition that is out there is enough to uh, stand in the way. I don't know that I think there's enough opposition to stand in the way, however much I wish there were. I agree with Stacey Abrams. Um, I think that this bill is dangerous for Georgia in the same way that RIFRA is dangerous for Georgia. And I know that there are people that disagree with me, but being a progressive woman who moved to Georgia for to work for a large corporation, if Georgia didn't look like it was going to at least be somewhat supportive of my progressive lifestyle, I definitely would have thought twice. Um, you know, there are plenty of other states with plenty with that are more progressive. They're just not as business friendly, not as easy to live because of cost of living and things like that. And so all of those things go to an account or at least came into account when I was looking to move. And so I I definitely would have some reservations. To to wrap this up, Ben, there in the long run there may be a backlash to this bill or in the, in the long run, if, if, uh, abortion opponents get their way, you're, you're not likely to see a nationwide ban on abortion. You're more likely to see state by state restrictions where in progressive states, abortion is legal and accessible and in conservative states, it is not. Um, and that I think to me is where Stacey Abrams criticism matters the most is if Roe is ultimately overturned, um, then you will have basically two countries when it comes to abortion. And that is when I think corporate relocations and where your Fortune 500 businesses are, when that when the rubber is going to hit the road on that issue. If you have negative economic consequences or if this bill is divisive enough to cost Republicans control of the state house in 2020, is that worth it? Yeah, so so politically speaking, I don't believe that this will cause us to to lose the house. Um, I think if anything, we may hold steady and not gain back as many seats as we uh, may have with the with the suburban areas that we saw after the blue wave in the midterm election. But um, but for me personally, just speaking not as a politico, but as just a person, yeah, it's worth it because we have about thirty thousand abortions here in Georgia every year. This is said to restrict. This would hold back about somewhere in the 80% range uh, of abortions would be after this six weeks period. And so if you do the percent, 80% of 30,000, uh, is that worth some businesses leaving our state? Yeah. The the other thing, just to close this out, so this inspired a lot of resistance, but one of the uh, more amusing pieces of resistance was a testicular bill of rights uh, written up. I don't think it was introduced, but it was written up by State Rep. Darshan Kendrick, uh, Luke and Megan, what did you make of uh, this bill that basically puts 
similar kinds of restrictions on male reproductive organs and activities. So I did not think in any way, shape, or form that this bill would make me laugh. But the fact that these other two potential ideas came out of it is pretty freaking hysterical. Um, I think it was Political Rewind, which is another local podcast, uh, that sa- said that they were wondering if um, Kendrick was writing for SNL. <laughs> and um, it, this is pretty good stuff. Yeah, I was happy to see it, the bill, just because I feel like a lot of times uh, people, it's hard to like convey the message of how abortion bills make women feel. And so you can argue about the merits of it. But I think at, at least hitting on the like aiming for empathy, I think the bill did a good job. Also, it's funny. Yeah, I think uh, if this was a serious bill that was getting committee hearings and moving through the process, I I think uh, people would not find this issue as amusing as... Uh, but it is notable that uh, a bill regulating those topics it will not get a hearing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it is representative of the, uh, the people who are serving in the legislature. Um, all right, let's move away from that topic and move on to our next <laughs> a topic. A much less so. contentious topic, elections. <laughs> Barely. Yeah, somewhat less contentious. It's a it's a high bar. Um, so today, the Senate passed legislation on a party-line vote overhauling the state's voting system, including authorization for $150 million to purchase new voting machines. The debate centered on the choice between hand-marked paper ballots and touchscreen voting computers, with the bill's advocates citing election administrators' preference for touchscreen machines similar to the ones already in use. Democrats and outside critics decried the pick as the least secure option and questioned the cost the new machines would impose on the state and on counties. Um, This bill is going to have to be heard again in the House before final passage. Uh, Luke, I know you were watching the debate on this bill today. What did you make of this discussion over touchscreen machines versus handmarked paper ballots and in the outcome of the vote today? I think when the most frustrating thing about this election issue is this was one place where the Republican controlled legislature and the Republican governor really could have done something bipartisan. And I think it would not have been that hard to do it. And this has been an opportunity for, you know, Republicans to really reach across the aisle. And I'm just frustrated to see that they didn't take that very easy, very obvious opportunity because they could have gotten to this exact same result that they're pushing so hard to have gotten to, but included the other side in a much more substantive way and not rushed through the process as they have towards this uh, particular system and really, you know, absolve themselves of a lot of the concerns nationwide and in Georgia about our election system. And the fact that they didn't take that uh, method uh, was you know very uh, frustrating to me. As far as the debate between the systems, it's very technical. Um, but I think the thing that has been frustrating me about it is that both sides are treating the opposing side th- like their uh, complaints are not reasonable and aren't valid, and that is just very frustrating to me because. Yeah, you know, for the handmarked paper ballot side, like eighty percent of states use this system, so it's like it's not a oddball, strange system that like we just pulled out of thin air. It's like a very legitimate system, and the you know Republicans they have their reasons, both uh, legitimate and concerning, uh, why they want to use a touchscreen system, and I just feel like. This is one of the areas where a lot of reaching across the aisle could have been done. It's not an issue like abortion, like we were just talking about, where people are really dug in. This is a place where people can be convinced and uh, work, you know, to come to a joint solution, and we didn't do it, and that just frustrates me. Ben, Democrats aren't the only opponents of this bill. Uh, conservative organization Freedom Works wrote a letter critical of the costs based on estimates produced by Secretary of State Raffensperger. Um, they basically compared it. Uh, th- they compared Raffensperger's cost estimate to 
buying a Chevy and then adding in the cost of insurance, gas, and repairs for 10 years, and then comparing it to the cost of simply buying a Bentley and trying to assist, trying to insist that the Bentley is cheaper. Despite some pushback among outside conservative groups, this was a party line vote today. Every Republican supported the bill in the Senate. Why are conservative lawmakers so sold on these uh, ballot marking devices, these touchscreen voting machines, uh, despite some concerns over cost and security? Yeah, just to be completely honest, I am not the expert that Luke is. Luke has uh, spent way more time on these issues than I have. Um, I do know that uh, if you look at the, the current cost estimate is $150 million, and that has machines for every county in training. And if we had these machines for as long as we had the current machines we have now, the previous machines, then that will come out to a million dollars per year. Uh, that will be that is kind of the the cost per year over time. That doesn't seem like a whole lot of money for me for our voting system and its longevity, uh, if, if we get it right. And so I don't think we're talking about an an, astro- an astronomical amount. Um, I, uh, I I think it seems kind of reasonable. Again, I my understanding is the current system that they're talking about will have a a touchscreen feature where you will vote on the touchscreen. It will print out a receipt with a barcode which will have how you voted, and then you will go and scan. When you scan that, that will be your vote. If you print out the receipt and it has an incorrection, you'll void that receipt and then start again. But then once you scan it and vote, you will have a paper trail so that there will be a paper trail to your vote. So it's a dual touchscreen plus paper trail. I love I love the idea of a dual method. I you know It was talked about throughout the elections coming up that you will have a paper trail and a, and a digital trail. I like that as a... As a is a general theory, um, and and this is the way they chose to go about it. But again, I I, I uh, me and Luke agree. How about that? Um, as a general rule of process, when the when the rule when the when the party in the majority pushes something through and does not go through regular order and does not include the other party, when there was the opportunity to do that, that's just very frustrating to me. And I think that the, uh, we see that a lot of times in D.C. and we saw that here in Georgia, and I think it's unfortunate. Megan, somebody who I think is okay with a one-sided process is Secretary of State Raffensperger. His deputy Secretary of State, Jordan Fuchs, uh, she shot back at criticisms from conservatives on Facebook, basically saying that uh, the letter written by FreedomWorks, which was written by Jason Pye, a uh, longtime Georgia resident and somebody who I think is familiar with a familiar name in Georgia politics. Uh, she said that the critics of the bill did not fully comprehend the climate of our state, the demands of our communities or the objectives of this office. Um, and there was a, uh, they, they went back and forth arguing about this on, on Facebook and in the comments, which of course it's, it's very on brand for 2019. Um, what do you make of Raffensperger following in Kemp's footsteps in terms of being combative with his critics and publishing information in this instance on the cost that a lot of people said was misleading. Do you think this undermines what, you know, what everybody's been arguing about for the last couple of years that the secretary of state is supposedly a nonpartisan position? I think it does. I think that one of the things that I would like to see even as a Democrat is for our secretary of state to be nonpartisan. Um, I think that the, just the role of that office, the way it should work, it needs to not be affiliated with either party so it can truly be impartial. Um, and so it's a little frustrating when I see things like this that end up falling along party lines. And then I'm going to echo Luke and Ben. This is an opportunity that we have as a state to come together and to be, you know, to cross party lines and to make agreements. And we're not doing that. And I think that it's the, the part of the, part of the reason why we're doing that is because of the position of the Secretary of State's office. Yeah, I'm frustrated too, and I I think that this is deliberate. I mean, the estimates put out by the Secretary of State have this wildly inflated printing cost measure. Uh, the difference here is the Secretary of State put out estimates about handmarked paper ballots, which is the the method that Democrats support, and said that the big cost of this method would be 
printing costs for counties uh, who are who have to run these elections. Um, and he used a wildly inflated measure of the the per ballot printing cost compared to what other counties have negotiated, including what Cobb County negotiated for part of the 2018 election. Um, and then today on the day of the vote, uh, he released cost estimates from the different vendors who are offering uh, their services as or that they will offer their services in a request for a proposal if this bill passes. Um, and these estimates were put out there, I think, as a gesture of transparency on his part, but they were impossible to compare because they were all offering different things. And they did not divide the costs up where where you can measure the cost that the state will incur and the cost that the counties will incur. And this is a, a big sticking point for the bill's critics because they are frustrated that this bill has been jammed through the process without a fiscal note. And the gestures of transparency here in terms of the cost estimates that have been released are basically bullshit, in my opinion. Um, so this is like, this is everything that people got upset about, about Kemp. And Raffensperger came in with the opportunity to have a, a fresh start, a clean slate, and he is continuing to operate in the same way that Kemp did. Um, and I, I think that this continues to undermine the position of Secretary of State and its ability to implement laws that are as divisive as election laws. And I think that's disappointing. And I don't think that that's what he campaigned on. But, you know, campaign rhetoric only means so much these days. I, I agree with all that. And the, the thing that I want to add to this is my, my key frustration with this debate is I remember a couple of years ago, like maybe back in 2014 when I was hanging around the Capitol, and I always kind of laughed at some of the like hardcore right wing Republicans who were always talking about hand-marked paper ballots. And this was their big thing. They were so concerned about it and talking about it all the time. I really didn't think that much about it. And then after uh, this election cycle, when we actually kind of need to look into it, uh, I, I became sold on it being a better system. And what I think is just so frustrating is, is the duality of the fact that these concerns have been around for a while. It's something that we've talked about in the state. And the fact that we are just rushing through to do a system that's very, very similar to the one that we currently have, and so many people are so willing to get on board with that immediately, just because the governor that we have supports keeping that type of system, and just the sort of, you know, like, lockstep support of this type of system does not seem very wise to me, and, uh, you know, the two reasons for that is, one, you know, we have an outstanding court case uh, dealing with our machines that are very similar to the ones they want to get, and if they are proven to have the same hacking concerns as the old machines, then I don't know if the court's going to support that and let us, you know, we're going to spend all this money potentially on these machines. And then the court's going to come back and say, these machines are just as bad as the previous ones. And uh, it, yeah, know, it, newer Luke, or not. It, and it's unclear, Luke, that they'll pass that test because the lawsuit that focused on this issue uh, popped up during the 2018 election and the judge, Amy Totenberg, basically agreed with uh, the complaints about yeah, the voting system on the merits, but said that the issue that this you couldn't litigate this issue so close to the election. But she basically issued a warning that if this issue was not solved, she would rule differently next time. Um, and, and that's something I didn't hear anybody on either side talk about uh, with this. And that's one of my major concerns because, and this is what was talked about, there's really no way to audit this system because the initial input from the voter is on a machine. And so if there is a malfunction or a hack with the machine, there's really no way to catch that because it is a machine-generated ballot that comes out and is red. And, you know, one thing, because I want to give the Republicans credit here, they did say that, you know, barcode does not mean it's not a human readable barcode. So, yeah, maybe there's, you know, whatever system that can be computer reg, whatever seat you'll get, maybe it will be, uh, you know, one that uh, will be readable by people and that would help to assuage these concerns. But um, without further guarantees and further details that we don't have at this moment, uh, I, I'm very concerned on that. And I think this is just a wasted opportunity 
to do the right thing because this is a major investment. I mean, this is a lot of money <laughs> that we're going to be spending on this system and we're going to be living with it for a while. And so, uh, you know, I, what I'd hate to see is us spend all this money and then, you know, two cycles from now, we're in court again. We're having these same problems and, you know, we end up having to buy a third system. So, in, in, yeah. in fairness, I do want to say, because I agree with you, I, I like to see the majority party act in good faith and, and to include both... Uh, all, all portions of the majority party and the minority party. I think that it's good for democracy. I think it's good government. I also think that it is a little uh, unrealistic and, and just kind of politically naive to think that a, a, that a minority party can lose an election, file lawsuits, not uh, concede the election, uh, and, and kind of give a congratulations. To, to be fair, it was one candidate that refused to concede the election. The gubernatorial, the main candidate. The, 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 the candidate that draws everybody else out to vote. So that you can have that, you can have lawsuits filed, you can have the main candidate not concede the election, and then you can say, hey, but include us on the process for the reforms of what we're not willing to uh, to concede to. So I, I just to be fair, I, I think it's good government to do it, but I also think that on the heels of that to say, hey, why didn't you include us even though we tried to delegitimize your win is a little politically naive. Well, I also think it's politically naive for Kemp to, after facing all those criticisms, to think it's the best political move for him to rush all this through and to have, you know, a lobbyist for one of the major uh, election machine purchasers be on his staff and think that we're not going to criticize him about these things. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. to be fair, this is carried by Barry Fleming, and this is mainly Raffensperger's deal in the House. I mean, this is... Yeah, but I do want to I want to get to that vendor issue in a minute here. I I think the flip side of the coin to what you're saying Ben though is that um this bill also has a couple of tweaks to other regulations about voting that stem from the court cases that were filed by Democrats when they uh, were challenging uh things going on with the vote and Republicans have alleged that uh, Democrats should be on board for this bill because what a court forced the state to do last year and last year's election is now going to be a part of state law. And that should be enough for Democrats to come on board, despite the fact that uh, Republicans have not been receptive to Democratic criticisms of the method here. Um, but the other thing here to wrap up this discussion is the issue of vendors. Luke, as you briefly noted, um, Kemp does have pretty close ties to one vendor called Election Systems and Software. Uh, Charles Harper, who is not the Georgia Poll guy, um, he was a lobbyist uh, for Kemp's Secretary of State's office from 2012 to 2017. Then he was a lobbyist at ESNS for six months in 2018, and he is now Kemp's Deputy Chief of Staff. He is also a, a former uh, state rep. This came to light in an investigation by McClatchy and in a uh, a long article in The New Yorker that was taking a look at the role that vendors play in how election systems are purchased. Um, and a lot of the criticism here is that elections officials, not just in Georgia, but in other states, participate in this advisory board for ESNS, and they give feedback based on the voting systems and uh, their experience with them. But ESNS also runs pilot projects in states that uh, critics say are designed to basically box a state in to accepting to like expanding the pilot into a full voting system when the time for request for proposals comes. This is not uncommon in politics for vendors to be close to politicians and, and for, um, for decisions in uh, proposals to be made based on this. But the thing that like really annoys me about this is that this has a big tie into the airport takeover debate to me that advocates of the airport takeover cite this cozy relationship between city hall, the mayor and commission and vendors who are supplying or vendors who are selling their stuff at the airport. Um, and so they are arguing for a state takeover of the airport to provide oversight and get rid of this, uh, insider contracting that goes on. And then in the exact same legislative session, they turn around and they push through this bill over the objections of Democrats and the public. Uh, a majority oppose this voting system in an AJC poll taken at session. Um, and they put out misleading cost estimates and incomplete cost estimates 
all designed to bias the debate in favor of a vendor. <laughs> and the underlying argument here was that it's the city that's corrupt, not the state, when in the exact same legislative session, the legislature is doing basically the same thing that they're criticizing Atlanta for. Um, what what do you guys make of the role of vendors in this process? And do you think that this process should have been focused more on expert testimony and and where the public stands on this issue? I think we should have relied on expert expert testimony to then create our own RFP questionnaires for ven- for vendors. Um, I think that it's it's a, it's a little bit putting the cart before the horse to just have a vendor basically say, okay, this is why I have the best product. Um, cause they're going to say whatever they want and they're going to say whatever they think is important. And now granted, all of our issues are pretty public, so they probably do know, but I think that our questions need to be based on expert concerns and we need to get good answers for those before we move forward with any vendor. Uh, I, I would just like to point out that the issue with the airport is that all of those vendors go back to one person, right? That there, it is all under the control of one person, not the council, right? So it's it's the format as much as the individual, right? It doesn't matter if it's under Reed, under Mayor Bottoms, that it's the fact that it all goes to one person, not that there's corruption with that one person. And so my point is that Governor Kemp did not write this legislation. He did not put forward this bill. He did not testify in the House. He did not pass in the House. He did not testify it in the Senate or put it forward in the Senate. He did not pass it in the Senate. He had no vote. All he will do is sign the bill. Now, of course, he has influence. But my point here is that the system is in place that if other uh, uh, representatives believe that because of their relationships, another vendor would be better, then they could put that forward. It's, it, you know, tying it to, to uh, Chuck Harper who is his deputy campaign manager trying to say there's a relationship there. I don't know if there, you know, is or isn't kind of that movement happening behind the scenes. Of course, we know that vendor relationships and stuff like that happened all the time. But, um, but I guess my point is, is that it's not, it's the system that we're talking about with the airport that it goes back to one person. Whereas in the house, he has no vote until he signs it. It's who writes it. It's the house votes on it. The Senate votes on it. It's the process. Well, he did also say when, uh, Governor Kemp was Secretary of State. He did establish the Safe Commission that basically started this conversation. And critics of this bill are very critical of the operation of the Safe Commission and the fact that they did not hear testimony from somebody who supported paper ballots. Um, and that they that the commission itself, which is the the starting point for this legislation, was not was also not attentive to the complaints of uh, their critics. Um, with that, though, I, I think we'll move on from that one. Um, that is a bill that also has to go back to the House. Uh, so, But I, I think given the overwhelming margins for Republicans on these votes, I, I think it's one that is likely to pass and, and land on Kemp's desk. Um, let's uh, move on to our discussion of the MARTA vote in Gwinnett County. Um, so next Tuesday, Gwinnett County residents will head to the polls and decide whether to join MARTA. If the effort succeeds, it would lay the groundwork for trans- for expansions of transit, including more frequent bus routes, bus rapid transit routes, and the extension of MARTA heavy rail further up I-85. And passage would also begin to expand the horizons for transit into the suburbs, with advocates looking over to Cobb County as the next new entrant into the MARTA system. Uh, But passage is far from guaranteed on this issue. Um, Luke, if Gwinnett County gives the go-ahead, if the voters there give the go-ahead for the county to join MARTA, what do you think the impact of getting the state's second largest county into the system will mean for the future of transit generally in the Atlanta region? I think it have a tremendous impact. One thing I think is really important to consider in this conversation, too, is how many times Gwinnett has voted no. And just for a county that was so strongly against joining MARGA to finally do so and join MARGA, I think alone has uh, a really you know big message to me and could have a big impact. And I think it, you know, it... M- Transit has had a, a good couple years in the state of Georgia. We've been advancing and thinking about it significantly more. And I think more people on both sides of the aisle are far more willing to support transit than in the past. So I think 
Gwinnett saying yes would really just kind of keep that momentum going and really uh, see it pushed further. And, but I think on the same token, that says what the risk is here because if Gwinnett says no, then I think there's going to be some big consequences in the state uh, for transit. Um, Megan, this vote is occurring next Tuesday, which means it did not occur at the general election in uh, November of 2018. Do you think that has any chance to impact the outcome? And and what do you make of having this vote next Tuesday as opposed to in a regular election? I do think it could impact the outcome. And I think it was strategically placed um, away from the general election because general elections tend to have more turnout. And because of the um, because of Stacey Abrams running, it also drew quite a large Democratic turnout. And Democrats tend to be the ones that support public transit bills. And so I think that strategically placing it away from that without a large Democratic draw just makes it much easier not to have enough votes to even come close to passing this, which is unfortunate. Um, yeah. And one of the things here that has me really frustrated is uh, the the chair of the commission, Charlotte Nash, she said at a forum earlier this week, she was basically pretty patronizing of young people saying uh, that right now, this was her quote, right now we need very much to see younger folks wake up to the fact that there is a referendum and get to the polls. I'm surprised that younger folks are not recognizing that it's really their future that we're talking about with this referendum. This is just such a loaded quote to me because there was a compromise when the county decided to have this referendum that the vote would not happen until March with the intention of uh, Republicans, the Republican majority on the Gwinnett County Commission, uh, the intention of protecting their seats with the assumption that the legislation with the referendum would pass even if it was held in March of 2019 instead of November of 2018. Uh, Some of her members on the commission lost anyways, but she was the one who authorized a compromise to allow this vote to happen in the spring. And and now she's coming out being critical of young people for not getting out and voting in a random election uh, when there were plenty of young people and plenty of people of all ages who support transit in Gwinnett um, who went to the polls in November. And it's not like they don't realize that this is important. I mean, there's a uh, candidate uh, who's a... Uh, Young Democrats of Georgia member, and uh, her name is Nabila Islam, who's running for the seventh, yeah, the the seventh congressional district seven, and she's basically like suspending her campaign to like help this effort, or she's at least directing her campaign efforts towards this referendum. So I mean, and she's a younger candidate, obviously, as a, you know, in the young Dems age age range. So um, you know, I I think it's while the turnout has skewed older. Uh, I, I can speak for you know my organization that we are definitely uh, thinking about and working on it, and you know it's it's on the top of our list at the moment. So, well, and my frustration here is that Gwinnett County has lost businesses because of the traffic and because of the lack of transit access. They have lost the opportunity to bring corporations to the county, um, and so they played politics with a significant economic development issue all in the attempt to save a Republican majority on the commission. That was the thing that just really kind of grinds my gears about this is this is, this should not be a political issue when it's rooted in the future of economic development in the counties in the state's second largest County. Yeah. I don't really have anything to add on this one. I'm not really for it or against it necessarily. If I lived in Gwinnett, I'd probably vote against it just because the cost of it versus where I think we're going with transportation being automated vehicles and stuff like that. I think the bang for your buck and how long it will actually be necessary, I would just probably personally vote no. But you know what? This is a, this is why it's a county referendum. If the people of Gwinnett want it or don't want it, knock yourself out. I hope that more and more people get out to vote and uh, whatever they want to do is good with me. I appreciate, Ben, that you've highlighted our need to have a future transportation conversation on this podcast. (laughs) I don't think you're right about that. All right. Well, we will uh, table that uh, for a future episode. Let's wrap this up with a couple of other odds and ends from Crossover Day. Um, A bill that we 
discussed last week um, that has been in the news is the passage of a, a, a hate crimes bill. Megan, what do you think the prospects are of this bill? And what would this bill mean for people in marginalized communities who would be recognized, specifically recognized under the law, under under a hate crimes bill? For me, the biggest group that would be affected is the LGBT community. Um, depending on how you interpret the bill, it may or may not include the T, so that T for transgender, um, or just any gender identity. Um, so that's a little bit up for interpretation. Um, but it provides some protections that this state and the environment in the state needs to give um, for people who are adversely and more strongly affected by crimes committed against them. Now, I think you asked me how likely I thought it was to pass. I, you know what, I'm going to choose cautiously optimistic on this. I know that there is some um, doubt about its ability to pass or not, but I'm just going to put it out there. It has a chance. Good vibes. Good vibes. Yes. Good vibes. I respect that, Megan. Good vibes. So yeah, it ha- it has a Republican lead co-sponsor. It's it's got bipartisan support, and the uh, Republican lead co-sponsor is in a very competitive district. Um, and so his politics. This is uh, Representative Chuck Evistration. His politics, I think, are are much different than the further right wing of the Republican caucus. Um, but you know, it, I think it remains to be seen uh, whether or not this this bill can uh, clear the more socially conservative chamber. Well, I think an important thing to know about this bill is since we've been talking a bunch of contentious issues is this is one of the few bills that like kind of fits into the bipartisan, how things should be done uh, element because, you know, some people thought it didn't go to uh, go far enough. Some people thought it went too far. And so like on that front, it's a, uh, you know, good bill for a, a example of what we'd like to see happening in Georgia. And then another important thing to note is, uh, Georgia is one of five States that do not have hate crime bills. Uh, you know, we do deserve credit where credit is due and that we had one previously, but the Georgia Supreme court, uh, overturned it in 2004. But, uh, we need to get one back on the books because while it definitely would help the LBGT community, uh, African Americans and other uh, minority groups are, are currently unprotected by a state hate crime bill so uh i i'm supportive of it for that reason as well luke is back on the old nobody's happy that means we must be doing something right track exactly <laughs> i also want to note that when we were uh there for crossover day um the passage of this bill was met with quite a bit of applause and that was very uplifting a another bill that made it through the process uh is uh commonly known as the tim tebow bill now we got three Georgia Bulldogs on this podcast, me, Ben, and Luke. And there's strong division between us and our LSU Tiger, Megan. But I think we can all agree in our hatred of the Florida Gators and uh, Tim Tebow's career tearing up the Southeastern Conference. Why are Georgia legislators pushing through a bill named after Tim Tebow? And Ben, what does this bill do? Yeah, so this is one that hits close to home for me. So I was homeschooled. My wife was homeschooled. Um, and uh, and so th- this is what this bill has to deal with. So it's called the Tim Tebow bill because it was originally passed. The first time this bill was ever passed was in Florida. And it was actually passed uh, for Tim Tebow because so many uh, high school football coaches wanted him on their team that they got their superintendents to lobby to allow homeschoolers to play in public school sports so they could get Tim Tebow. So that law was passed and then he played in high school football. And we know the unfortunate rest of that story. That being said, <laughs> go dogs, yeah, right? Go uh, tigers. So, anyways, well, he tore y'all up too. So it's not like you're happy with him. I mean, oh, he tore everybody. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let's not talk about Tim Tebow anymore. So, anyways, well, hey, he's a great guy, but that's neither here nor there. All right. So, um, uh, but the bill has gone through throughout many, many states now, and basically, what it says is the, the public schools are funded primarily by uh, your millage rate in your county. Uh, also by some state tax dollars and a tiny bit of federal, but primarily by your millage rate. And homeschool families pay that same millage rate as everyone else. 
However, it's an all or nothing system right now in that you fully send your kid to the public school or you don't have any benefit at all of the public school. And what it does in Florida is it creates an a la carte system where if you want to send your kid to play sports or you want to send them to science class because you're homeschooling but not equipped for science or anything like that, then you can send them to get that education and then pick them back up and then bring them back for homeschool. So it basically says since you're paying for it, then you can go and receive certain benefits and not uh, all the benefits. And I also think that another homeschool that uh, bill that came before the house that was talking about um, there's an unfortunate case in South Georgia where a woman pulled her kids out of uh, school and DFAX was already investigating them. Anyways, they found the kids buried in their backyard or whatever, but she put it under the guise of homeschool. Um, but this creates more accountability, right? That if you're seeing the, those homeschool students or around other students and in the, in the classrooms, then that can only create more accountability that hopefully that parents are doing the right things at home. So I think it's a good thing as far as good government that if you're paying for that service already, then you can have as much or as little or in between as you want. I lived in Florida for two years uh, under this law, and it was hugely transformative for me and that I got to play public school sports and go in for certain classes and not others. And it was just great for my life. And um, and so I hope uh, I hope Georgia will pass it as well. And then one final bill before we go today, uh, a bill ratifying uh, the constitutional amendment, the Equal Rights Amendment in Georgia. Georgia's a state that never ratified the Equal Rights Amendment. Um, and so there is an effort to do that uh, very much so after the fact. Um, I'm actually unclear on where this bill is. It, it, it crossed over before crossover day, right? No, it's dead. Oh, it's dead? Oh, uh, well, fitting uh, then. The pendulum uh, is clearly swinging against women's rights in this legislative session. All right. Well, with that, I think we are going to leave that uh, there for the week. Um, so everybody, uh, thanks for another podcast we are coming down to the end of legislative session here we've got just what three weeks left i know it ends in early april so uh we're we're heading for crunch time um so we're going to keep you guys up to date on how that goes moving forward uh, but we're getting close to the end um so uh luke thanks again for another podcast always megan thank you as always thank you and ben thanks for coming on with us today absolutely all righty guys we'll talk to you later That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.